Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us. This is episode five of the Marketing AI Show. What are the applications of artificial intelligence and marketing that would change everything? A few years back, I read a Wired Magazine article, Bill Joy Finds the Jesus Battery. In the article, Joy shared a brief story about how he came to discover this breakthrough technology. The article read, about a dozen years ago, David Wells and I at Kleiner Perkins made the list of 25 potential breakthroughs we thought would make a difference. Rather than waiting for people to show up with these innovations, we took our thesis and went looking. In the case of batteries, we said, we want something that's a solid instead of a liquid inside the battery, because that improvement would unlock innovation. It was 2017, and I'd spent the previous five years theorizing how AI could transform the marketing industry. But that article gave me the idea to start a sort of innovation council for the industry. Basically, the premise was to pull together some of the top minds in the industry and create a list of innovations that would transform everything, and then go find the experts who were working on the underlying technology or problems and build smarter AI-powered solutions. Had I known our guest today back then, we might have found our Jesus battery by now. So what are the innovations that will change everything? Let's hear what Harry Saeed has to say. First, a quick word about one of our show sponsors, MarketMuse. MarketMuse Suite, an AI-powered content intelligence and strategy platform, analyzes millions of articles on demand, uncovering gaps and opportunities for better content. The output empowers marketers to craft high-quality content that their audience loves and search engines reward. MarketMuse uses AI to accelerate content planning, creation, and optimization. MarketMuse has a team of content and AI veterans using machine learning that enables clients to gain authority in their topical domain. Receive 20% off select packages for your first year with code ACADEMY20. Visit marketmuse.com to get started. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show. I'm joined today by Harry Saeed, Executive Director of Innovation at Subrosa. Welcome, Harry. Thank you very much. Very glad to be here. Yeah, and you and I got talking, it was about two weeks ago, I think we got introduced by Sweezy, if I'm not mistaken. Matt Sweezy was one of our guests on the show early on. And Harry and I, I, we didn't even, I don't even know why we were talking, honestly. I think Matt just thought it would be cool for us to yeah. have a conversation. And, you know, we kind of started off, like, you know, just learn a little bit about each other, talking a little bit about some interesting use cases of AI. But then pretty quickly, we both realized we had a really shared interest in the transformation of marketing through, like, the big ideas, the leaps forward. And I rarely come across people in the industry who have that vision, but in your case, actually have the capability to build the things. And I was like, dude, we got to do this again, but we're recording it this time. And so <laughs> here we are talking about how we can change everything with like the big ideas for AI and marketing. Yeah. I, going back to how we met is actually interesting. It's, it it fills into some of the, the thoughts I've had about the way we actually think about marketing and Say, for example, Matthew Sweezy, great guy. I was introduced to him by a colleague of mine, and we had a great conversation. And he turned around and said, you know what? I know a great guy that you should talk to. His name's Paul. And I said, set it up. Let's have a chat with him. And we jumped on, and here we are. And and 
at some point a little later on today, I want to segue into that particular method of human-to-human connection yeah. and how machines currently find that difficult. I love it. All right, so let's. Uh, I want to get into that too. Let's talk about your origin story first because it was fascinating. It's always, you know, you're when you think about AI, and you know, I came up back 2011, 2012, learning about AI by looking at other industries. Like, what are we doing on Wall Street? What are we doing in logistics? What are we doing in healthcare? How's AI being used there? And how may it eventually be used in marketing? And one of the things I took away back in like 2014, 15 was it's only a matter of time. There's only so many people capable of building AI solutions in the world And right at that time, they were focused on other industries for the most part. The VC money hadn't come to marketing and sales yet to apply AI, and the talent hadn't come to the marketing industry yet. And you kind of follow that path because you didn't start applying AI in marketing. So why don't you just kind of give us your origin story from the PhDs to like how you applied AI and how you fell into kind of the marketing space. I've always had my my eye on on the notion of artificial intelligence. I think it goes back to probably when I was about 12 years old. But back then it was, there was a, a fascination with artificial intelligence and biomechanical engineering. Now that's still young to be thinking about those kinds of topics. Uh, unpack for me for a second, bio, biomechanical engineering. What, what is that so, as a discipline? So biomechanical engineering is one of the ways in which you would use it is how would you combine machine and biological tissue, okay. organic tissue, and how would you combine them together? An example of that is a new form of prosthetic limb that can receive information from temperature or from touch. So senses, giving, giving its senses right. through intelligence, basically. Through intelligence. Yeah. So, so you're basically cognifying organic tissue. Okay. You're taking X, you're cognifying it with Y. And a form of biomechanical engineering is potentially an exoskeleton, organic, organic tissue over the top of that, but it's running with sensors that are, that are cognified by a form of intelligence that then links up to your neurological pathways, right? And then you receive that information, it's translated. And I had a fascination about that when I was 12. Okay. And I don't know why. It's interesting. <laughs> it kind of just came out of nowhere. I mean, I had a lot of interesting influence as a young child. My father talked about engineering all the time. We often sat and discussed the simple things like why light travels the way it does as you know as one father as one one, will as one (laughs) does cereal Uh, and chocolate milk refraction and reflection (laughs) of light over billions of billions of light years and how that changes time and how you should think about time differently but when you go down those roads you start to think about other things and just like today when you try to solve a problem and when we look at creative thinkers and i've been working with creative thinkers at sub rosa they get information from everywhere. They don't, right. they don't just get it from one place. They could be walking to a coffee shop and they would be inspired by something. And that really separates the creative thinkers from, I guess, people like me. I'm, I, I feel like I'm a logical thinker. I've been told I'm a logical thinker as well. Yeah. As time went by, I continued to follow the discipline of artificial intelligence, stayed consistent with it. And uh, the academics that I did were primarily focused on a lot of image a lot of image recognition, a lot of understanding how we can process images very quickly and extract information from images and what the use cases of that would be in the real world. So, for example, I had a lot of conversations with a representative of Lockheed Martin who was introduced to me about 
image recognition for missile guidance systems. Sure. Um, but for other kind of disciplines using image processing, it was for medical purposes, which was very interesting at the time. So I spent a fair bit of time working in the research field of wireless endoscopy. You know, we took 20,000 images of the GI tract of uh, the colon, and we identified 10,000 normal cases and 20,000 abnormal cases, which were pictures. And we trained a machine using neural networks to understand the difference and then classified the actual the actual diseases with a diagnosis. And then we had a camera that was built with small little, small a little pill with small little cameras. You swallow it and it will take pictures as it goes down your throat, down to you, through your esophageal tract, into your stomach and through your intestines and then passes through your system. But those pictures will be uploaded wirelessly. And if you have a stomachache or if you're on vacation, your doctor's here in New York, but you're in Australia, you know, having a great time, and you seem to have some kind of issue, you swallow this pill and it will upload the images and it will analyze them and send the results to your doctor in America. And we were testing that at anything between 88 and 97% accuracy on diagnosis. Wow. Without a doctor, without any kind of endoscopy, without anything, just swallowing a pill. Yeah. And what year, like what years are we looking at here? I mean, that was... That was published in 2006 or seven, I think. Yeah, see, I think it's a perfect example. Like, I always tell people, like, when they think AI is crazy and it's abstract and, oh, okay, I get it. It can write email subject lines. It's like, no, like, 14 years ago, they were doing right. things like this with AI. Like, the right. marketing industry is decades behind the most advanced things AI is capable of doing. It is. It is. And I guess that actually, I guess that segues into how I got into marketing. And I, I wanted to continue studying and it was extremely exhausting to to work in the medical field of research knowing that your ideas would sit in approval for decades. So although the innovation was there 14, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, to get something approved would take forever. Sure. And I, I, I kind of loved the idea of coming up with an idea and seeing some kind of tangible result and then playing with it and testing it and then sharing it. And then having people play with it and, you know, creating that kind of environment, that community with good ideas. And I stumbled upon another friend of mine who, who said that he had just launched his own website. Now we're talking about back in 19, sorry, 2007, 2008. And he said, you know, what would be freaking cool if my website could just change because it reacted to somebody's personality. Like knew who they were and, and could profile them from a personality perspective and adapt on the phone. He was a dentist. <laughs> he was a dentist that just had an idea. And he sat there and he said, what if my whole website could just, my dentistry website could just change if, if it reacts to somebody's personality that came to my, my dentistry website, veneers, teeth whitening, this, that, the other. Why do I have to show them everything? Why Are they, they here for health? Are they here for vanity? Are they here... I, I don't want to show them all the things. Yes, I want to upsell them, but I don't want to show them all. I want to grab them first and I want to get their attention. And I think that's where it just hit me. Well, I don't think that that's difficult to do. I mean, you can just start with some basic JavaScript and you can mock something up and put it into your, your host file and then we can do a reaction test script. And then, and then ideas started crawling out. And that worked. You would just recognize an inbound cookie. You'd measure the time that inbound cookie spends on a particular piece of content on the website. And then you would classify that, store it. If that cookie returned within a certain time period, it would 
just show them content that they spent the most time on. That's it. 12 that's years ago. So this is 2008, you said? This is 2008, 2007. And that's, a, so that's what I started doing right around the time for a, uh, a data storage company that were basically just taking paper and bringing it to the cloud, but then analyzing that information as well. So, so that personalization concept really piqued my interest. And then it kind of went from there. And then I, I, I met another guy and there was a startup on attribution. I didn't know what attribution was. I had no clue what attribution was. But when they explained it to me, the logic and the math sounded really interesting. And then they came up with this idea of there's last click, there's first click on, on tracking media and tracking how you should attribute dollars to a specific channel. But then they were like, but what about best click? How can we work out what best click is? The average, the mean, the sum? Where do we come up with these ideas? And then that's where you start bringing in forms of intelligence and you start bringing in things like random forest or game theory. And you just start playing with it. You create a, a test environment with all of these ideas. And then you see the results. And then you create the what-if scenario. And you go to I, the client. I think so, what you're giving the example of is like, what this is going to take for the industry to truly change and realize what it's capable of doing with AI is this combination of the vision to solve something differently, to look at a problem and say, well, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? right. And often that takes the business mind and the engineering mind, the, the person who can actually build the thing. Because what I have found, and again, you and I kind of just get to know each other, but there's a lot of the technical crowd that really struggles to find solutions for their expertise. It's like, I can build stuff. Like I can classify things. I can predict things. Like, tell me what you need to do. Whereas me as a business person, I just look at everything and say, well, that could be done more efficiently. That could be done more efficiently. But I don't know how to actually build it. I just now look at things as there's inefficiency in a process or there's underperformance. And I know there's smarter ways to do it. I just don't know how to build it. And that's why I was right. so fascinated to talk to you is because you actually seem to blend the two worlds a little bit. While you may not consider yourself a creative, you get, step into an industry, you understand some fundamentals, and you immediately start looking at ways that you could make it more intelligent. I love the play on finding patterns between things that just would never seem to have a pattern within yeah. itself. And I think that there is, or there are, so many wheels that don't need to be reinvented, but just need to be slightly more polished. And I think that there is a whole universe out there for marketing where low-hanging fruit might seem complicated, but it actually isn't that complicated. Yeah. It all depends on the use case that you're trying to solve, right? So so I worked in Dubai for three years for uh, Omnicom Media Group. I love – Dubai is amazing. It's a, it's a place where thinkers and, and people with ideas – really kind of descend upon in that region to create and build. And I remember speaking to a very large automotive company out there, and they said, we need an idea. We don't know if it's ethical from a privacy standpoint, but in this region, we don't have any laws for privacy. So what can we do? And it gets a bit interesting, you know, it's, it's interesting. So, so, Privacy policies were coming up all over the place. GDRP is kicking off in Europe and other privacy policies coming up in the USA. And at that time, they were like, we, we don't have, there's no law here. Really, 
no constraints. I mean, PII, PII is still a thing. You're not going to track someone's actual first name and last name and their date of birth. You're not going to do that. But you you can get away with quite a fair amount of of, of their user behavior. So the guy was sitting with me and he said, dealership, here's the brief, dealership, social, email, website, and signing up for test drives and someone walking in and actually like taking a car for a test drive. How can you tie all of these together using intelligence, using machine, using some kind of automation? And my first reaction was, you're a marketer. And he said, yes. And I said, I don't see a lot of marketers that think like this. This is kind of outside the box. It's interesting. It's unique. And um, he said that I wasn't a marketer. I was an engineer. I turned marketer. And I did a keynote speech about this. The CTMO, the chief technical marketing officer, the actual hybrid of the new form of resource, the new form of talent that is no longer just always marketing all the time and their career has grown. But that is now slowly shifting and changing where you might start seeing data scientists start becoming marketing managers, marketing directors, marketing executives, CMOs. I was once a data scientist because I, I, I really only tuned myself to understand the problem and how I can resolve it with some form of algorithmic logic, maybe. Who knows? But speed and efficiency, scale. But anyway, the idea for that automotive company was to create a heat score, a heat map, and give it a temperature. So if someone came to the automotive dealer's website and they spent a certain amount of time on a particular model car, their heat ranking would go up. And depending on how they interacted with the car, specifically what parts of the car they hovered over and the different um, aesthetics that they want to change the car to, all of these things were taken into consideration and were immediately beamed over to the dealership. So when that person signed up for a test drive, the salesperson at the dealership would say, Mr. Joe Bloggs has a heat rating of 89 degrees likelihood to buy this particular model. You may not have it in stock, but talk about the aesthetics of the model like this. And a script will be delivered to the salesperson. How many years ago was this? Five. 2013. Man. 2012. For our listeners, because we do have, a, you know, we have a, some beginner and intermediate for sure. I mean, most of the industry, I would still say, is beginner trying to understand AI and just like wrap their head around this whole idea of intelligently automating tasks and making predictions and do these things like this to me is such a great example of the opportunity that exists i didn't know stuff like this was happening in those years like i was writing my second book in 2014 and wrote a section about what happens if ai comes to marketing and sales like it's going to happen but like what happens to the industry when it does and it was impossible to find people doing it at that time. The big tech companies, billions of dollars in IPOs for marketing tech platforms, not an ounce of AI in them. The major right. companies, not they don't have a single machine learning engineer. Like these are tech companies with thousands of employees. And so like the stuff you're doing, my guess is a lot of listeners and, and viewers would be like, you can do that. It's like, no, you could do that half a decade ago. Like imagine what you so. can do now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you tell me, what do you think with your experience and all the things that you've been looking into researching and people you've been speaking to is, do you think it's some underlying fear? So when big data came in in 2010 and everyone said big data, you need as much data as you can get. And then it slowly kind of fizzled away and then said, well, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And then that became a thing. But then when when the the revolution of AI came around, it quickly, I felt, got stunted because 
well, I don't want to lose my job. Yeah. Or this is so complicated, it's beyond my even understanding. I don't even know how to begin to understand this. And then, so the initiative to wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to come up with some cool initiatives for automation to scale and, you know, grow the company looking at a different light. I felt people weren't doing that because of multiple reasons. I don't know, it was fear yeah. or just concern of the time. No, so I, I mean, I've done over 100 talks on AI around the world and you do almost inevitably always get, oh my gosh, is this going to take our job? Like that question right. gets asked almost every time. So I have been under the assumption it's, it's fear, that it's fear of the unknown, it's fear of job loss. Our recent research that we did with Drift on the state of marketing AI doesn't agree. I think only like 14% of people said it was fear. What, what I think it is, now the lack of education and training, by the way, was the number one answer by far. It was like, like 67% or something of people said that was why. My belief is it's too abstract. And, and, and like, this is why so much, like I'll often lead my talks with your life as AI assisted and your marketing will be too. And then I will explain Netflix, Spotify, Google Maps. I will show them a Tesla driving itself. Like bring it down to reality. Like you're using it dozens of times. It right. is not scary. It's actually not that abstract when you understand what it's doing. It's just math, like enabling these incredible things to be done more efficiently and giving the machine some human-like abilities. But it's not taking everybody's jobs. And it's not like right. if you just know what it's capable of doing and you can find use cases, it's not scary at all. But I do think people just think it's a buzzword. It's, it's abstract and like, eh, I don't know, like, I'm not that concerned with it yet because I don't think they realize the leap forward it can give their company and themselves. If they're the one, only one in the room, which is going to be the case in most instances now, that actually can look at something differently and say, you know what? I listened to this podcast or I took this course. I'm pretty sure we could automate this whole thing and have it get better on its own over time with the right person in the room who knows the right way to apply AI. Just to be able to say that, it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, but yeah. I don't think we have enough of those people that have got past that, whether it's fear or just like confusion, to start applying it. It also might just be a natural transition. I mean, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people follow, follow the trendsetters, follow a trend. They trust a trend or they trust an influencer or they trust something. And I, I read somewhere the turn of the industrial revolution when people were washing clothes on a flat plate with ridges on it and rubbing clothes on it. And then someone turns around and says, well, I just took some electricity. I wrapped some copper around some magnets and I put a drum in a metal box and then I put the power in and this drum started spinning. So I threw some water in there and some soap. And guys, just put your clothes. It's called a washing machine. And people are like... <laughs> No, no, this is madness. <laughs> and here we are. But then what were the jobs that were created? Okay, so all the people sitting there washing clothes might have lost their job in that particular instance, but those very same people had to increase or grow themselves, their capability, which was good for them anyway, because what do they do? They either became washing machine engineers, they built laundromats, and they had all these washing machines. And so all these things started changing. People just adapted. We will always adapt especially in, in, in the way we work today, creatives, okay, creatives will have their job. I can't imagine a machine anytime soon using their instinct or a machine using its subconscious to come up with these wonderful ideas, Google Dream aside, 
to to come up with these amazing concepts that we see on you know terrestrial TV or what we see at the Super Bowl. Right. Right. I don't know if the machine is going to potentially whip up the the Oreo moment in a split second. Right. I don't. I Intuition, it's, creativity, strategy, like those are the things yeah. that I always say are uniquely human. And you can argue, can a machine be creative? You can see what they did with AlphaGo and like the moves the machine made and say, well, was that creativity to like, right. that? it's like, no, it was just really hardcore math in a way humans can't even wrap their head around that it did something you would never think to do as a human. And I, I so I, but yeah, I mean, I agree. There's just these, there are these things, but it's hard to look out ahead, look around the curve and say, well, what are those jobs? I, I understand what you're saying. I get it, but like, what are they? they say, I don't know, but I can tell you they're, they're a bunch are going to come up that we can't even imagine right now. Like one, I, I, get, I did a, a talk at a big healthcare company and I was like 150 employees explaining AI and, and intelligent automation of different tasks and communications and PR. And people were like, what the hell? Like, do I have a job? And I said, to them, I was like, listen, here's an example. Someone needs to figure out how to do all this. Like someone needs to understand communications and PR and sit there and look at all the individual activities and say, yeah, there's definitely tools to do that, that, that. Then they need to find the tech. They need to like figure out how to work with those vendors. They need to train the team, how to train the machine, how to like evolve their, like there's this whole operations and tech, like to your point, that kind of technical marketer, those people don't exist. Like if you wanted to go hire one, where are you going to go? They don't come out with a degree in it. They're not being trained at corporations with it. No. So there's this, this entire landscape ahead for marketers to become like these next gen professionals, like totally different capabilities. But the fundamentals of understanding marketing and business would still be at the core. Will always be at the core. Yeah. People will still, consumerism will still work the way consumerism works. Just you might find a different way to sell to them. You might find a different way to target them or understand their motivation, but it still is going to be the same thing. To understand the very function of a brand, what a brand stands for, the competitive landscape of that brand, and also the audience that want to buy from that brand or from that organization. I think those things will definitely stay the same. But the framework of, of which those brands and how they operate, the frameworks that they sit on, the frameworks in which how we understand the psychology of all the motivations of audiences and how quickly that they're moving around and changing their minds – that framework, yes, will most likely be machine and be more machine and more automation, more cognification, more intelligence. That will keep coming up. How we interact with it, how we educate it, how we educate ourselves, these are going to start to become more compulsory in our roles as we move forward. That's for sure. So when you look at, I mean, you know, you've been working in the marketing space, it sounds like 10-ish years maybe, like applying your knowledge and capabilities into the marketing space. You've seen a lot. A lot of the things you've probably seen and done would be mind-blowing to people. Like, again, some of the examples you're already bringing up are things I'm, I'm guessing a lot of people haven't even considered. But when you start looking out three to five years from now, knowing what's possible, knowing there aren't many technical limitations, that the, the technology in most part exists now to take leaps. It's just not being applied. Like, what do you see as the transformational things in marketing? Is there is there a holy grail to you? Is there like the the one thing that could change everything? Or do you look at kind of more, like I break into language, vision, prediction, movement. Like those are my four parent categories I often look at and think, what would be the breakthroughs in those areas? But do, do you have breakthroughs you think about? I mean, all the time. Some of them go way beyond five years. Some of them probably sit in the 20, 30 year mark as well. I mean, I, I, 
I think that there is a natural progression to all things that can make not just marketing better, right? But because when I look at marketing, I think of, I think, again, I, I go back to, I think people connecting to people. And I think organizations in the next three to five years will start to adapt. And I think that all of these marketing tech platforms, so many variations. I mean, you remember the Lumiscape. You watched yeah. how it grew. Yeah. It just went from this to just this. And how did that happen so quickly? And then how many categories that exist? Five years, I think that's going to disappear, mostly. I think that in the next three to five years, what's going to really transform for marketing is a central nervous system will be embedded in each organization. And that nervous system will be the way in which it will constantly understand the psychology, the motivation of the people that that brand cares about and wants people to care about that brand. And I think it will be in the form of some kind of evolutionary edge computing. It will not just be cloud. It will be faster to react. It will be on-premise and it will be extremely, extremely intelligent to ingest data, process the data, have the classifications on what it needs to do with the data, understand the use cases of, of what the brand, the brand strategies are, what the marketing or historical campaigns, the whole nine yards will all be sitting in this machine. And, and it will be able to come up with these forecasts and these predictions. I also think that there is a huge tie to that neurological system that we part of an organization to empathy. Now, you can't really, you know, code empathy into a machine. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Not the way we as humans understand it. Not, not the way us humans understand it, right? And so many variations of empathy. And But what if there was a way that a machine could almost identify a way to help teach us what it's like to be in the shoes of a consumer on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis? What if a machine was able to help educate us? translate information to us that your your particular neurological nervous system that sits in your company, Paul, knows you very well as you are its user on a daily basis. And thus, it collects information and tailors it just for you. So you can understand the day in the life of a particular group, a segment, or an audience. And by doing that, your decisions are now fueled by some form of empathy. The machine gave you the tools, but your own experience, your own instinct, your conscious mind, your sentient mind was able to take that information from the machine and then do something wonderful with it, such that your your audience don't feel like they're being badgered or hounded with a with an idea or an ad or come to me, come by for me all the time, or let me just spam you. All these negative emotions come from not understanding your audience. And I think that in the next three to five years, there will be a symbiosis by which machines will talk to their users and the users will be the CMOs and the marketing executives. I think mean, they'll find a new way to learn. And, and I think that, that that then expands. Now, when you use that machine and you go further, I mean, take Neuralink. If Neuralink really, really kicked off in the next 10, 15 years, who's to say that you can't download a subconscious mind and transfer it? Who's to say that you can't put yourself, your subconscious mind into that of a consumer and actually live in their shoes 
for a day and really understand how they tick, what their motivations are. What if that just became a reality? Mm, it's not impossible. No, it's not. And if you're not familiar with Neuralink, Elon Musk's company, where they're basically creating lace that lays over the brain to be able to right. Because when, when, we, when, we, when we think of when we think of the human mind, what, what really, if you break it down to its bare bones, what is it? It's a lot of storage. It's electricity, right? Two of the most important things: a lot of storage, electricity, and then binding these together. There's a lot of input. And we use our six senses for input. We store them. We remember things. And then somewhere in that gray area of our brain, we then create an emotion. And that emotion talks to our memory. It talks to our incoming senses. It, even our outgoing data, our emotion talks to all these things, inhibits our decision making. And we then call it a gut feeling. Maybe we then talk to it as if it's a soul. But what if a machine had enough memory and enough power? Who's to stop that gray area evolving by itself? Is that not what Ray Kurzweil defines as a singularity? What do you say, 2045? 2029, last I saw. I don't know if he's he's changed that, but yeah, (laughs) I thought he said by the turn of the next decade that he saw the singularity happening. But I I mean, I, I loved your... So what you were explaining, like our tagline for the conference in the first year, the Marketing AI conference was more intelligent, more human. And I think you actually just explained the more human part of what, in my mind, I know to be possible. But because I'm not the technical person, sometimes I have difficulty explaining how we can actually become more human through the integration of machine because it can make us smarter, because it can inform us of things we maybe can't interpret at scale because it can free us up to think about the meaning of these things and the actions we should take as a result. Like that's to me what the more human thing meant is if we do this right, if we use AI for good, we can create better customer experiences. We can personalize for them. We can free ourselves up to think more freely, to do more uniquely human things. Like that to me is the the grand vision of what we can create in the industry and at a broader in the society but I also have these great, great fears that these same powers can go very wrong. And I think that's part of the reason I built the Institute, part of the reason for the podcast, the event, all of it is to like push these conversations forward because it's going to happen fast. These capabilities are going to yeah. emerge. The marketers have superpowers and they're going to have the choice to do good or bad with them. And I, I just, I think we need more conversation around what's possible, stretching people's minds about what's possible and maybe this is like way too far for some people, but like people are going to be doing this stuff like this. It may seem weird to you, but like it's possible. There are really smart people that can apply this technology in insane ways. And that's the reality. And I think the more we just live in the reality and try and say, OK, how do we do it right? The better off we'll be as an industry and as a society. Yeah, absolutely. The possibilities are endless. It's just how we use them. And that goes back to the ethics of AI as well. Yeah. Something that Elon Musk has spoke a lot about. Yeah, ethics of AI, very, very important as we respect the power that it has and also try to put some form of control into some of the amazing ideas some people might have that just might be a little bit out of... Right, to your question, like to your point, like where's that line? Where's the ethical line? Where's the legal line? And those lines may blur more in the future as more becomes possible. And again, that's my big argument for the industry as a whole is like just at minimum have a base level competency in what AI is and what it's capable of doing. 
if you're not the one that drives it, that's fine. If you don't ever work with somebody to build a, an algorithm or machine learning model, if you don't ever drive personalization, like that's fine. But you got to at least understand it. You have to give yourself the knowledge to make the choice not to go further. <laughs> like if you get yeah. part on and you say, all right, I'm good. This stuff's just nuts. I'm, I'm retiring in 10 years. Like let the next generation worry about it. But I, I just, I don't know that we have the time to do that. I, I no. think this stuff's going to happen fast. It's going to happen fast. I, I feel like I'm seeing it happen with identity, with yeah. resolution of IDs, multi-device resolution, or resolving an ID across social channels. I think that at the rate and pace of which privacy is coming in and, and, and stopping all of that from, from really happening, we went from statistical to deterministic. We're going back to probabilistic statistical again. There will be better ways in which we will resolve a form of ID, right? And even if it's not about resolving to an ID, that whole ecosystem will in itself evolve on how we understand who it is we should be targeting and why we should be targeting them. And I think that gives a completely different meaning to right message, right place, right time, right person. I think that completely evolves as well. And I think when that stays within the realms of ethical AI and ethical within the realm of legality as well, we will see a huge evolution of the universe of marketing, which I think slightly ties back to what I've been building as well, moving away from just IDs, just completely moving away from IDs and understanding people. I think that's a great place to stop. I mean, obviously, we could go, <laughs> we could spin off here. Talk about that. There's a, and I think we'll just have to do this again. I mean, this is awesome. It was everything I was hoping for, like in this conversation. So we'll, we'll wrap it up the way we always do with the rapid fire questions for Harry. But first, let's uh, hear from one of our sponsors, Pattern89, and learn a little bit more about them. Pattern89 is predictive marketing AI for Facebook and Instagram. It's the first artificial intelligence for marketers and ad agencies who want to know what will make their social ads work before they spend a dollar. It's the world's only platform that predicts, assembles, and optimizes top-performing ads. Ready to make your ads more intelligent? Visit pattern89.com. That's pattern89.com to get started. All right, we are back with the rapid fire. I got a couple unique ones here. These are, I've never asked these ones before. Your LinkedIn profile says you've held roles in leading marketing technology efficiencies for Pepsi, McDonald's, Unilever, Mercedes, and Booking.com. The companies you've done some work with, or maybe a company you know you haven't done work with yet. Who do you think? Which company do you think is the most innovative when it comes specifically to AI, but just most innovative overall? Like which are the ones that you look to as just leading the way, or the one company? And it, it, again, it may be Google, it may be Facebook, it may be Microsoft. You've worked with a lot of companies. Who do you see as the most innovative? McDonald's is the is that right? Far off. Yeah, I, I think McDonald's is up there. I think that they, with some of the interesting acquisitions in the last few years, the way in which they understand the power of data and not just its data, but the bigger question, why do I need this data? What problem is it going to solve? That is the beginning of anything a machine needs. And that's the same with you, same with me or same with anyone else. If you walk into a room, you're going to analyze the room and then you're going to decide whether you want to stay in this room or you want to leave this room. The same could be said about, okay, I'm an advertising company. I need data. I'm not going to just bring in all of this information and put it in boxes and then start analyzing it. You have to ask questions. And I think McDonald's are very good at asking the right questions to bring in the right data for the right reason. And I think for that alone, 
when they start putting a lot more cognification and intelligence on top of the right data they have, they're going to be able to make some very, very interesting decisions. That's a I fascinating that one. Yeah, because I, yeah. uh, I know Dynamic Yield was one of the companies they had acquired. Yep. And I know there's a couple others, but I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they were getting into like adapting the menu on the drive through based on the individual, based on the weather, like that yeah. they had learning in it so that you would, everyone doesn't seem the same drive through little things like yeah. that. The thing is, it's an interesting use case. There's, you know, 300 odd million people. And I think their target audience is everyone that's 16 years old with a mouth yep. and above. Right. So, so that's pretty much, a, that's a huge group of people. So how do you, how do you make your service more, your offering more unique? And I think that that's where they're innovating a lot. All right. Favorite place you've spent time in? Again, LinkedIn, you say, I know you're born in London, live in Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken. Spent yeah. time in Hong Kong, Sydney, Dubai, Amsterdam, Madrid, London, New York, where you've you know worked in different areas. But favorite place? Do you have, do you have a favorite? I want to say Hong Kong. Is that with right? Close, Hong Kong with a close match to Indonesia as well. Jakarta, Bali. They're all different in their own little way. I think that the... Uh, the most interesting people in a square mile that I've met has been in Hong Kong. That's a cool way to put it. <laughs> yeah, the most interesting people in a square mile. <laughs> I like that. Walking a square mile I've met has been in Hong Kong. and Amsterdam, uh, probably, depending on which square mile you walk in, might classify. I mean, I, I was scattered all over the place. I, I was living in Wan Chai. I spent time in TST and, you know, downtown Hong Kong as well, central. And I I... Everywhere I went, there was there was an innovator. There was an inventor. Love it. We don't need more lawyers and accountants. We need more <laughs> innovators and thinkers. <laughs> All right. Voice <laughs> assistant you use the most. Alexa, Google Assistant, Siri, don't use them. All right. So so when my friends come over to my apartment in, in Brooklyn, I tell them, my house breathes. My apartment <laughs> breathes. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about, Harry? And I say, Alexa's jacked into pretty much everything. I have a sensor on the front door. And if I come in after 10 p.m. and I'm just too lazy or tired to find the lights, after 10 p.m., the lights are, they come on at 20, 30% dim. Alexa controls all that. And if I don't, she, she already has a geolocation on my phone. She picks it up. My projector screens, my sound, my light switches, I think about 65, 75% of the house is completely run by Alexa. Siri is only when I'm driving. Okay. I think I know yes. It's more valuable in 10 years, a liberal arts degree or a computer science degree. Do the machines just create themselves in 10 years and is computer science not needed or is the cre do the creatives rule the world? Computer science or liberal arts, to be honest, I think with, I'll take my nephew is 13 years old, lives in London. He knows more about IP addresses and networking than I probably do now. I think that children that are growing in today's society are already almost nearly pseudo-qualified computer scientists already, right? They're fixing problems that we weren't even thinking about. We were running around playing with sticks and riding our bikes and falling over and hurting our knees. It's a very different society now. I think with all of the technology that they have in their hands and have access to, I think the, the, the way to balance that out would be liberal arts and put it, inject a bit of creativity in your life. Take what you know about the machine and then find creative ways to evolve and mature the world around you. But use that with liberal arts. That's awesome. Yeah, and I actually thought about that way that that, that, that generation is just going to come up with so, all of these innate abilities 
because of the things they experienced growing up. So it's like, you might not need it. And the no code revolution may get to the point where it's all about the idea generation and telling the machine what to build. And like, yeah, fascinating. I mean, my friends have got children that are five, six, seven, eight years old, and they, they're teaching them coding as part of a hobby, yep. as an after school class. It's they're becoming computer scientists, right? I started with my son when he was five, using the Swift app on the iPad, creating the little video games, the monster going after the gems and teaching them how yeah. to code. Yeah. All right, last one. Net effect over the next decade: more jobs eliminated by AI, more jobs created by AI, or it's a wash. More jobs limited or created by AI. <sighs> okay. All right. There's two ways of looking at this. First way of looking at this is it depends on how stubborn you are as a human. <laughs> if you're really stubborn, you're going to lose a job. There's, I think that's probably if you're, if you're not willing to change or adapt, you're going to lose a job. If you're willing to change, adapt and learn and develop and see the silver linings in all of the machine that's coming out and, you know, the supercomputers are on their way. Quantum com- computing is about to become a utility soon. In 10 years' time, if your mindset is such that I can find a unique way to be the architect of how this machine operates in today's world, it will create a lot of jobs for people. On the other hand, if you're just like, no, I enjoy flipping burgers, which is fine, but Miso Robotics will come in and take your job, right? I mean, it just depends how you look at it. You can either be the guy that stops flipping burgers and now starts to imp- help input parameters into the Miso Robotics so it flips burgers. So you are now a user of the machine, the architect of the machine. The machine needs you to give it input. You have a, a solid job because the machine will always need that input. Or you just become the person that says, no, I want to keep doing this. There is an eventuality. You're either behind the ship or you're in front of the ship. Depends where you want to be. Ten years, a lot of inevitabilities are going to happen. Yeah. That's I, I I often sometimes I'll show the slide of like I graduated from college in 2000 and I just have the slide of all the things that didn't exist yet the iPhone right. Netflix Bitcoin Tesla you know Spotify like all of it like none oh, yeah. of it Google was a year old you know like Amazon sold books it's the world changes fast and it's gonna keep changing fast and things keep changing. All right, man. Any any final thought for listeners? Just like again, so many of our ours are the marketers who are just trying to figure this stuff out, haven't run a pilot project yet, just any guidance for them, any you know thoughts who might be I motivated, think, like, I got to do this now? Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I think that there is a difference between the, the technologists that are academics, and they, it's their full-time job to be academics, but they don't understand your world because they work in embedded research. And then there are the innovators and the, the, the thinkers. There's not enough of them to come in and help you guys understand and learn and, and, and understand your world and teach you the innovations that can happen. Basically, there's not enough of them. There's just there's not enough of them. I think that what would really be amazing for, for marketers uh, moving forward is find new ways to, to learn the true value of how you can innovate with automation, with intelligence, educate yourself. It's all about education at this point. The more you learn, the more you understand and how it's relevant to your specific use cases will, one, obviously explode your mind, but also, two, it will start to help you understand that it's really, just to get started, it's not that difficult. Test environments are simple. AWS and and the the Google Cloud Suite, they're utilities now. It's 
power is right there at your fingertips as well as storage. You have an idea, find someone, find your Wozniak in this case, find someone to come in and help you test it out and then see what the tangible results you can create. Learn from those. Mistakes are inevitable. Machines are not perfect. They probably won't be, but you would learn as you go. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Harry. I mean, this we will definitely do this again, and I can't wait till we can do it over a drink in person someday. Absolutely. <laughs> um, man, it's Looking just fun to, to talk. All right. Great well, time. this is thank you again, and this has been the Marketing AI Show. I appreciate you joining us today. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.